Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. Well, hey, TCC. If you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse 28 as we continue in our sermon series that we're calling Luke for All Seasons. And we as a congregation are entering into a new season at TCC. You've probably heard us talking about it, and we're excited about this new venture of launching a new campus on the east side of town. And this is a soft launch right now. It's going to take some time and energy and resources. And we're trying to be wise and we're trying to be strategic, trying to find more and more ways of sharing the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission. A frequent term that Mario, our campus pastor, uses and is very much on his heart is city transformation. City transformation. But that term, that expression was bandied about so often in our discussions of East Campus that at some point, someone, I don't really remember who, said, you know, city transformation, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means anymore. And that's understandable. We can easily become numb and deadened by our familiarity. And the frivolous way that we use language can rob us of the words, of their power and their meaning. You know, I think about the ways I use the word awesome in reference to things that are really not awe-inspiring. I use awesome like it means, all right, well, there you go. You know, I went on vacation. Oh, awesome. I got a haircut. Oh, awesome. Nice. That looks awesome. That sounds awesome. You want some awesome blossom? Let's get an awesome blossom. What does that do to us? You know, how does that affect us, that, that a word that we use fittingly to describe the God of heaven and earth, we also use to describe deep-fried onions? What does that do to us? Well, our passage today centers on the glory of Jesus, his inner circle, the people that Jesus was closest to, people who lived with him, who traveled with him, who saw his miracles, who heard his teachings. They capture a glimpse of his glory, and they're awestruck. The transfiguration, not the transformation. And there's a subtle difference there. It is Jesus' appearance that changes, not his substance. Jesus doesn't change in substance here. What changes is how they see him, not who he is. This is the same Jesus that they walked up the mountain with. This is the same Jesus that they followed and learned from. This is the same Jesus that they've known, but they didn't see his glory before. Not like this. And we're Christians. We know Jesus. We've experienced Jesus in our lives. We've heard Jesus' teachings. We've heard the gospel over and over and over again. And as a church, as Tulare Community Church, we are approaching 50 years of ministry. 50 years, that's a long time. But familiarity can deaden us. We can become numb to the things that we know and so very much accustomed to even the most amazing. Where that word even doesn't mean anything. Where amazing grace is, is more rote than amazing. That's how we are. That's just humanity. And so one of the great things about new ventures is just that they're new. And if we want city transformation, and maybe we'll unpack a bit what that means, but if we want revival in our community and revival in our own hearts, then I think we need to see the glory of God afresh and be awestruck once again. And so with that in mind, let's look at this account of God's glory being manifested. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, after he said what? Okay, so hold up. Looks like we got to get some context here. Let's back up a bit. So what has just happened? 
Well, uh, Peter has just made his confession. Peter has proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus says this, verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's the context. That's what he said. He says that he's going to suffer, that he is going to die, but he's going to rise to life again. And then he tells them, anyone who follows me, anyone who's my disciple, is also going to suffer. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now, why would anyone want to do that? Suffering and pain and shame, why would we ever want to do that? Well, Jesus tells us why here. It's because of how it's going to end. If you live your life for yourself, you're going to lose it in the end. But if you live your life for Christ, you'll save your life. You could gain the whole world, but apart from Christ, it's not going to matter in the end. Jesus tells us the ending. In the end, Jesus is going to return in glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who are followers of Jesus, we share in that glory, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's coming. He says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be shamed and I'm going to die. But in the end, I'm going to be glorified. And likewise for you, if you remain in me, it's going to end in glory. This hope of glory is an encouraging thought. It's a sustaining thought. It's an empowering thought. Oh, things might look dim. Things may look bleak, but don't be deceived. It's going to end in glory. For me and for you, if you remain in me. So that's the context. And after he had said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. 
You know, as a culture, we really love makeovers. Before and afters are all over our televisions. You got the weight loss variety. They diet and exercise, transforming their bodies. And then you get the big reveal, the before and after photos. You got the cosmetic surgery versions of that. You get the dress versions of that. They give haircuts and makeup tips and wardrobe changes. And then they get the big reveal and, oh, wow. They look so much better. And you get the before and the after. But the most common of all, I think, is the HGTV version. That's just nonstop examples, right? Flip it, fix it, modernize it, big reveal, get the reactions. Oh, I can't believe this is my house. It looks so different. It looks totally different. It looks so good now. I love it now. And we see it in fiction as well. The overlooked person, the downtrodden, gets a makeover and is thrust into the spotlight, right? That's Cinderella. In fact, that's so common, it's become a trope that was actually hilariously mocked in a spoof film in which the cool jock makes a bet with his friend that he can take any of the girls at school and make her the prom queen. So the friend makes his careful selection, you know, passing on the girl with the hunchback and the conjoined twins and selects that girl who's clearly attractive, but she's got glasses and a ponytail and paint on her overalls. No way she could be prom queen. And that's funny and emphasizes how we can think of this in very superficial terms. And at its worst, it's nothing but vainglory and reveling in the superficial. And the Bible does warn us about just looking at the outward appearances. First Samuel, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But I think the truth is, the reason why we resonate to the Cinderella-like stories, why it's all over our televisions, is because it reminds us to look beyond the superficial. That's actually the point, because the superficial can change in an instant. And we can be just as silly about it. Now, Jesus can't be the Messiah. He's got pain on his overalls. We really can be that superficial. But is that what this is? You know, Jesus, extreme makeover edition? Jesus finally looking the part? Is that the glory here? I mean, after all, it does say in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. His appearance changed. His face changed. More majestic. His clothes got better looking. Jesus gets a makeover. That seems kind of superficial. God looks at the heart. Why why should the outward appearance matter? What kind of message is that sending? Well, there is certainly a physical manifestation here, but the glory is deeper. What's it like? It's like a bride adorned. You know, I, I knew my wife before I married her. You know, Peter has already confessed Christ. He knows who he is. He knows he's the Messiah. He's not tripped up by the superficial that Jesus is poor or that he was raised in Nazareth or comes from Galilee. That trips up other people in Scripture. It does. But Peter knows who Jesus is. These disciples, they already see Jesus rightly as the Christ, as the Messiah. That's not what this revelation is. I knew my wife before I married her. I knew who she was. And I would have married her if she came down the aisle wearing sweatpants. But there's a glory in the bride, isn't there? In the adornment, in the beauty, in the detail, in the grandeur. And it's physical. Yes, it is. It's concerned with appearance. Yes, it is. But it's not vainglory. 
It's not superficial. No, it's profound. It's a glory in service to relationship. And it's spiritual as much as it is physical. It's God the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father through the Spirit and the disciples are there to behold it. Or to think of this with another analogy, and analogy is really the only way that we can grasp glory in language. Otherwise, we really only know it by experience. But at least once a year, living in the area that we do, I have this experience where we get that good cleansing rain and suddenly you wake up in the morning and, oh, wow, there are mountains there. You know, would you look at that? And they're usually snow-capped at that time and just majestic. And I know they're there. They're always there. That hasn't changed. But it's something else entirely to behold them. And that's what this is here. They know he's the Christ. They're not lost in the superficial like some other people are. But the air suddenly clears and they behold his glory. You see that in their reaction. Verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah. I don't think they had name tags on. I think the Holy Spirit is clearly present here, revealing that to the disciples. Moses and Elijah, men that signify the law and prophets, the Old Testament, the revelation and promises of God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And a cloud appears and covers them. And we see this imagery of this cloud as the presence and glory of God throughout Scripture. But foremost in Exodus, the Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Exodus chapter 24, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And God's presence and his glory are awesome and terrifying. Exodus 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. The disciples here too are afraid. Peter doesn't even know what he's saying. He's basically babbling. In the Gospel of Mark, which is really historically Peter's account, it says this. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened, so frightened. That's the natural common reaction when experiencing the glory of God. It's overwhelming. It's frightening. Is that a picture even in our minds when we come in here to worship God? Uh, we want to make God so approachable. And that comes out in all manner of ways. In our architecture, our church buildings are not big or imposing cathedrals. No, they're warm and inviting. 
and we dress casually. We just say, come as you are, or watch online. You can be in your pajamas even. Stroll on in here, experience God, and bring your cup of coffee, right? Relax, get comfortable. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are good things. Those are fine things. We want to remove the barriers for people to approach God. We want people to draw near to God. And because of the atoning work of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And Jesus, in his incarnation, comes to us in an approachable way. And he's mindful of his audience. He's mindful of what people are ready to see and what people are ready to experience and what they're not. We actually see an example of that in our text, verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. That's odd, right? When we have an unbelievable experience like this, the first thing you'd want to do is tell people about it. Tell the other disciples. But they don't, and the reason they don't, as we know from the other Gospels, is that Jesus expressly tells them not to. Back to Mark. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And the disciples listened to him, probably because a terrifying voice in a glorious cloud just told them to listen to him. But Jesus is mindful of his audience. The others are not ready for this yet. They're not ready. Jesus says these words in John, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. They're not ready yet. And that's what Jesus does in his ministry. Jesus brings them along slowly, revealing more and more of who he is, revealing more and more of his glory. Not initially. They're not ready. And that's what we try to do in making God approachable. But be careful there, because these things that we do to make God approachable can shape the way we view God. We can make him so approachable that he becomes small and manageable and safe. And so never actually experience or behold the glory of God, the power of God, the majesty of God. It's overwhelming. It's frightening. But we need to see it. We need to see it. These disciples needed to see it. What was Jesus talking about with Moses and Elijah? Well, Luke tells us, verse 31, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to die. That's what he was telling his disciples before he came up the mountain. Things are going to look dim. They're going to look bleak. But don't get lost in the superficial. Because God is a God of transfiguration. He's going to rise. He's going to ascend. And it's going to end in glory. This is encouragement. It's empowering. It's sustaining. The disciples are going to face dark times. They're going to experience suffering and trials and difficulties and shame. And in those moments, they'll need eyes to see beyond it and to hold fast the hope of glory because our God is a God of transfiguration. But God is also a God of transformation. Look at verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Moses and Elijah appear in glorious splendor. They are sharing in the glory, transformed into his image, as it says in 2 Corinthians. And we all who, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's more than just appearance. That's a substantive change. It's transformation. It's not Cinderella. It's beauty and the beast. 
There's a physical change, yes, but there needed to be a heart change. You know, I love a line from G.K. Chesterton. He said this, There is the great lesson of Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. The scriptures put it this way, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And by doing so, he brings many sons to glory. His love transforms us and enfolds us into his glory. This glory here, this amazing, majestic, terrifying, awesome glory he extends to us. Listen to these words from Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And again it says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. The glory of the bride. It's not vain glory. It's in service to a relationship, in love and honor. It's not superficial. No, it's profound. Or hear these words from Revelation. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Isn't that amazing? that we are a part of the glory of the bride, that our very lives glorify God as if he needed it. No, God is self-sufficient. He was never lacking in glory. Jesus says these words in John, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He was never lacking in glory, but he invites us to share in it, to express his glory by our very lives, to clothe the bride of Christ with our righteous acts. Let's not grow numb to that reality or too accustomed to be awestruck, but let's behold his glory anew, to be encouraged by it and sustained by it and assured that when all seems dark, we have the hope of glory because our God is a God of transfiguration. And may that glory spur us on to transformation, to live lives worthy of his glory, to glorify God in our community and to make his glory known. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.